At this time, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading, um, for our scripture reading this morning out of respect for God's word. We're going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Stacy. Um, yeah, and just to uh, piggyback off of the Black Forest Festival cotton candy, today is the Missio Kids Promotion Sunday. We announced last week, and so all of your kids moved up to a new classroom to start the fall school year, and we're going to celebrate that. They have some gifts for them, and we're also going to have some cotton candy on the way out this morning. So I was telling John this morning that you, if you're at a Missio event, you have about a 50-50 chance of getting cotton candy before you leave. So this is one of those wonderful Sunday mornings that you get to do that. Um, it's, it's good to be back together uh, studying God's Word. We're going to be back in the book of Acts this morning continuing our series. We've been in Acts for probably almost a year now, but as we get going, um, about, about 15 years ago or so, one of my favorite songs was by an artist named Five for Fighting, and the song was called Superman, in parentheses, It's Not Easy. I don't know if you guys remember that, that, that awesome song back in the day, and making me feel old realizing how old that song is. But the reason that song was fun is because it, it's both hilarious and profound at the same time, and it's written from this perspective of Superman telling his story. Uh, what if Superman himself had weaknesses? What, what if Superman Superman had things that he was afraid of. Like, what if Superman didn't actually like to fly? What if Superman was kind of insecure and he wondered if, if you liked him for who he really was or if he was just some pretty face beside a train? I think that's a really clever line. Uh, but the thing that sticks out about that song is the idea of like, hey, if even Superman can have struggles, then maybe all of us can have struggles. It makes us feel like, hey, maybe I'm not so messed up as I feel like I am deep down inside because, hey, even Superman has some struggles from time to time. And the reason, reason I'm bringing that up is because for this last year, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, we keep talking about all these amazing things that God is doing and these amazing men and women of God that he uses to found his church at the beginning of uh, 2,000 years ago. And so it, it, what we're trying to get across this idea is that whether or not you work for a church or a ministry or whatever it is you do vocationally or with your time from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, God has given each and every follower of Christ a ministry. You, you have something that you are called to do in order to serve God and love people and see the kingdom of Jesus expand. No matter, no matter what your vocation is, you have a ministry. But when we talk about that, I think a lot of times we feel like in the back of our minds, we're like, well, it's one thing to study Paul, right, or Peter. Those guys are basically a supermen of the first century. And so uh, those guys, yeah, sure, God used them. But, but I have some things that I'm worried about. I, I have some anxieties over the ministry God's calling me to. I, I feel exhausted exhausted and depleted over the things I think God is calling me to. So I, I feel like sometimes we can feel left out of what God is doing in the scriptures because we feel like there's such this big gap between the superheroes of the Bible and then us in our day-to-day -day grind in existence. And, and, and the thing that's, that's true, though, is if you talk to anyone, uh, we all as Christians feel those same things. Okay, like I'm coming through a season of the last few months of feeling incredibly depleted and exhausted. And, and there's plenty of times where uh, when I, I feel led to share the gospel with 
someone and I'm filled with anxiety and fear and I, want, I worry about what will happen to me if, I, if I'm faithful to that, if, the, if I will uh, ruin the relationship, if I will be judged for what I'm saying. I, those, those fears and anxieties and feelings of exhaustion and depletion are very normal. And the thing that's encouraging this morning is that we see that, that even the Apostle Paul had those exact same feelings. Okay, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, the passage that Stacy read, that this is, this morning in Acts, we're going to study how Paul planted the church in Corinth, okay, how God planted the church in Corinth through the Apostle Paul. And this is how Paul describes how he felt when he arrived in Corinth. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Okay, Paul showed up in Corinth feeling depleted. He felt weak and exhausted like he wasn't able to go on. Okay, Paul dealt with the Corinthians from this place of fear and anxiety. He said he was with um, uh, trembling and with much fear is how he felt. Okay, so, so what we want to see this morning is that it is completely natural to, fear, f- to feel fearful of your ministry and depleted and exhausted in your ministry. Okay, th- those are normal things to experience as a follower of Christ. But the good news about this passage this morning is that even in the midst of those feelings, that, that is exactly the kind of posture that Jesus delights to step into and show you his grace and his love. In those moments of exhaustion and fear and depletion, that is actually positioning you very well to experience the presence of Jesus in a profound and personal way. That's what we're going to study this morning. So if you would say a word of prayer with me, and then we will get started in our passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, that your word this morning. I thank you that, that we as a church family can have this privilege week in and week out of opening our Bibles and knowing that this is your word, that it is completely true in what it tells us, and that you have given it to us because you love us. So I pray that as we uh, study what the Apostle Paul did and how he felt and what you used to bring encouragement to him, I pray that, that each and every one of our hearts would feel that encouragement. I got to pray also for us uh, that have been sitting on the sidelines, that haven't been engaging the ministry that you have uh, given us uh, as followers of Christ. I pray that this would inspire us to get into the game, to realize that you have a ministry for each and every one of us, that you are calling us to, to bring glory to you as we love those around us and see your kingdom grow. And so we ask that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 18. We had, we had about four weeks off from studying the book of Acts as we did a little summer uh, mini-series talking about the topic of rest. I think all four of those sermons were fantastic. We're, just, we're so blessed as a church to have, have Aaron preach for us and also those guest preachers who came in, did such a wonderful job opening the word of God for us. So, But the reason, just as a recap, or if you're, you're new with us here, the reason we're studying the book of Acts is because uh, Acts shows us how the church was founded from nothing into this global force that God used to change the world. And so after coming out, of a season of COVID when, when everything in the world seemed to change, uh, there's this quote from Erasmus that really connects with, with the book of Acts. It says, um, a- and Erasmus was writing in the 15th century when he said, Acts provides the foundations of the newborn church through which we hope that the church in ruins will be reborn. And, and that's what we're, we're praying God does with this book of Acts as we spend uh, this long time uh, studying is that God would use his story of how the church was born to rebirth our church into this uh, missional uh, movement that God is calling us to be. So, so as we get going, Acts chapter 18 tells the story, like I said, of how Paul planted the church in Corinth. Some backstory of the city of Corinth. It was one of the three most influential cities in the ancient world. The reason Corinth was influential was because it was the trade capital of the Roman Empire because of how the shipping routes 
went, worked. Uh, any trade that happened from east to west in the Roman Empire always went through the city of Corinth. And because of that, it was this booming, uh, 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 hu- huge city that was full of wealth, full of debauchery and temples and all the other things that the Greeks liked to do in the ancient world. Uh, and, and with that, um, as trade would go from east to west, the people in Corinth had this uh, undue influence on all of the Roman Empire. And so it's very strategic for Paul to want to show up in the city of Corinth. You can tell he's kind of thinking, if uh, goods and services can go from Corinth to the rest of the Roman Empire, then why can't the gospel emanate from Corinth to the rest of the empire? Okay, and that's kind of what we're realizing as we talk about how often it is that God calls people to move on from Falcon. Our same prayer here in Falcon, right? Falcon is not one of the three most influential cities in the modern world. We're not saying that. But because God does so often bring people here for a short season and then move them on, we're saying, why can't we have that same missional posture, right? If the army can send soldiers from from here to Fort Bragg, why can't the church send missionaries from here to Fort Bragg, right? That kind of mindset is what we want to have, the same kind of missional mindset that Paul had when he showed up in Corinth. So let's begin uh, uh, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, so after he left Athens, one of the other influential cities, uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Okay, so this is one of those areas where we see this glimpse into Paul as a bivocational missionary, right? A lot of times he worked solely on this work of mission. He would raise support to share the gospel with people he was preaching, but then there was other cities he'd go to like Corinth where he, he plied a trade. He was a tent maker or a leather worker is how you can translate that as well. And so he finds these other two Jewish Christians, Aquila and Priscilla. He, he hooks up with them and he starts making tents, providing for his needs so that on Saturdays, on the Sabbath, when he goes into the synagogue, he can fund his ministry to go share the gospel. And I think one of the things that we don't do well as a church is talk about how important our vocation is. I mentioned that earlier, right? Our nine to five. Okay, those hours that you are plying a trade, whether that's at home with your kids or, or something out in the workforce, those hours hours are some of the most significant hours you can have to to de- develop your ministry. Just like Paul had this bivocational ministry, God calls all of us to view our ministries as bivocational, both inside the church and what we're doing. And so one of the things we want to do is make sure that our, our, our mindset as we approach our jobs is one that we view it as a mission field, just like Paul did, an opportunity to share the gospel. But the reason that he runs into these two Jewish Christians, Aquila and Priscilla, is because they had been forced to leave the city of Rome by the emperor Claudius. And we know from Roman historians that in 51 AD, there was this Jewish revolt in the city of Rome, this tension over this man named Crestus. And because there was all this tension over Crestus, that uh, Claudius uh, issued this edict expelling every single Jewish person, whether or not they were a follower of Crestus or not, from the city of Rome. And what we, we now know is that the Roman historian writing Crestus just misspelled the Latin word for Christ, for Christos. And so it was actually some Jewish uh, uh, people in Rome, Jewish non-believers who were upset about the church coming to Rome that actually Actually, that's why Aquila and Priscilla were forced to move from the city of Rome to Corinth. And and the thing that we see here is that when government disrupts our lives and even forces us to move, right, like all you military people, anytime you PCS, right, when the government disrupts your life and tells you you have to move, um, that is something that is still under the sovereign control of God. Okay, God brought Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth at just this exact time so that they could be ministry partners and supporters of Paul. Okay, so, so, so um, even we see this in the uh, Ukraine right now, 
right? So, so government disruption. This war is causing so many Ukrainian refugees to flee their uh, nation and go to surrounding countries all around uh, e- the eastern end of Europe there. And what we're seeing is that the places most likely to accept these largely atheistic or orthodox uh, Ukrainians is local churches in these other countries. And so there's a lot of Ukrainians that God is bringing to himself and is coming to know Jesus because of the ministry that is happening there. That's what seems like a disruption is actually part of God's sovereign plan. Okay, and the, the reason that's important with Aquila and Priscilla is because what we see as, as the, the book of Acts unfolds and as the rest of the New Testament is written is this couple becomes an incredibly influential and important pair of, of people in the Apostle Paul's life. He, in the book of Romans, he says that they risked their neck for him. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, we see that they, 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 them as a couple, they disciple this man named Apollos, who is a super influential person in the New Testament. They, they end up being a very uh, important and significant feature in the rest of the New Testament. And it's because God brought them there at this exact time. And so if you think about, like we said, how did Paul show up in Corinth? Paul came to Corinth limping. He was there in weakness. He was full of fear and he was trembling. And at just the right time, God provided this amazing couple to encourage the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and so, so I like how a lot of times scholars point out, they're like, it, uh, Priscilla, the wife, must have been the more influential of the two because every other time they're mentioned in the New Testament, it mentions the wife before the husband, Priscilla and then Aquila. And that's something where if you've met like my wife, Kelly, you know, of the two of us, she's the more influential. She's friendly and outgoing. And so it's not Colbert and Kelly, it's Kelly and Colbert. That's just how our life works, right? So I kind of understand where Aquila is coming from with that. But the, the point is that this couple is uniquely equipped and gifted so that when Paul limps into town. They're just the right people to pick him up and to pour courage into him like we all need from time to time. And, and so if, if you're saying that it's natural to be afraid of your ministry and to, or fearful in your ministry and depleted by your ministry, that natural feelings of fear and depletion is only overcome by the supernatural presence of Jesus. And one of the surprising and wonderful ways where we experience the presence of Jesus is through biblical and godly friendship like we see here. Okay, so in in Matthew 18, Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I love that concept because what it says is super profound. That friendship, when we gather as friends in the name of Jesus, that we actually experience a miraculous mediation of the presence of Jesus himself. Okay, so, so we, we can gather in the name of fun. We can gather in the name of the Broncos or something like that. But when we gather in the name of Jesus and then we watch the Broncos or do something fun, what that does is it, it builds this spiritual bond between us, this friendship where we can encounter the supernatural presence of Jesus in a way unlike anything else. And, and, and that bond of friendship is especially important when we are in seasons of depletion and anxiety and fear, just like Paul was when he showed up in Corinth. We all are going to hit those seasons where it feels like we're getting shot at, we're full of wounds, we can't go on another step. And it's in those moments you need a friend who can run to you and take you to Jesus. Right? It's like in that, that movie Forrest Gump when he keeps, keeps running into the jungle, going to find Bubba and bringing him to safety. There is times you're going to feel so depleted, you need someone to put you on their back and sprint to Jesus with you, taking them there so you can feel the presence of Jesus. Okay, that's one of those supernatural ways that God brings courage. And so, so with that, this, this new friendship is formed. This bond is created between Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. And look what happens next. Paul gets back in the game. Verse four. And he reasoned, and this, this is Paul, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so we see as Paul uh, continues to engage the ministry, even though he's feeling these feelings of depletion and and fear, God uh, provides both opportunity to uh, baptize people, people come to faith, and we see the opposition that exists as Paul continues this ministry. Um, The the one thing I want to point out here is it says that when uh, um, his his other uh, partners arrived from uh, what would have been Macedonia, Silas and Timothy, says that they found Paul occupied with the word. What a beautiful description of Paul's activity. He's so occupied or consumed with the gospel and the word of God that when his friends stumble upon him, of course, that's what Paul is going to be doing. He's occupied with the word. I think too often I can find myself distracted by the world instead of occupied with the world. Okay, but when we say that we want to be a church that is scripture saturated, that's one of our priorities. What we mean is that we want to have the word of Christ dwelling in us so richly that it permeates all we think, say, and do. If someone bumps into us, what we want to spill out is the word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus. And that's what's happening with Paul. He is occupied with the word. But we also see that he experiences opposition. They're reviling him. They're they're, uh, making fun of him. They're attacking his arguments. And later they're going to try to actually persecute him physically. And we see that's another reminder of why ministry can be so depleting. when, When you are afraid to share the gospel with your neighbor, oftentimes it's for good reason. There's some bad things that can happen to you if you do share the gospel. But what we see here is Paul still continues to speak the word. And because of that, he has this confidence where he can say, even though you're opposing me, I am innocent of your blood. If you end up dying without believing the gospel, and if you go to hell because you never trusted Jesus as your savior, I at least know that it's not my fault. It's not on my head because I was faithful to proclaim with you the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, What he's doing is he's referencing this passage from Ezekiel where Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament and he had this word from God that said um, uh, prophets or, or followers of God, we're like a watchman on the wall. If you're a watchman or a guard at a guard post and you see the enemy coming, if you see the enemy coming and you say nothing, then everyone who dies in that city, that's your fault because you didn't sound the alarm. But if you're a watchman on the wall or you're in the guard tower and you see the enemy coming and you sound the alarm, but if people out of their own foolishness choose to ignore the alarm, that means that that their blood is on their own heads. It's their fault for choosing to reject the warning that they received. Paul is saying in that same way he is that type of watchman sounding this gospel alarm saying that if you don't understand who Jesus is as your savior, as the Christ, you're missing out on what is happening in your blood or your guilt is on your own hands. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon says it very poetically. I love this quote. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. I love the, the gravity of that. This whole concept shows us how important this idea of sharing the good news with those we meet really is. And the thing that struck me this week as I hit this passage is, is um, if I file through the list of my non-Christian friends in my life right now, could I say that if they died tomorrow that I'd be innocent of their blood? Like, are, are they leaping to hell over me or am I just handing them a beer on their way and saying, have a nice travel? 
Like, am I actually so consumed with their eternal soul and wondering whether or not they have heard the good news of Jesus' atoning death in their place and the offer of forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation with God and restored relationship with him as your father and, and living the life of purpose as an adopted son and daughter? Have I actually felt that passionate about it that I could say I have been faithful and I am now innocent of the results? Or have I been so fearful and depleted that people are going to hell unwarned and unprayed for. That's a sobering thing I think we all need to pray through and ask God to use us with. But again, we see that that, uh, it's it's natural to feel this feeling of uh, fear and depletion in our ministries, but that is always overcome by the supernatural presence of Jesus. And when we see that presence of Jesus kind of, uh, not hidden here, but completely clear here, that that even Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, okay, the, the synagogue is like the center of opposition to what Paul is trying to do. Okay, so, so in, in modern terms, it'd be like the atheist club on your local college university campus. And then Crispus is the head of that. He's like the president of the club, and he becomes a follower of Christ. He and his whole family, they all get baptized. Okay, and, and that is a sign of the presence of Jesus. Right? There, there is nowhere that a conversion can happen apart from a miracle. We look at this guy, and we're like, boy, what a hard-to-reach case. He, even the ruler of the synagogue, even him, he became a Christian. But look at your own heart. Like, like, where was your heart before you came to Jesus? There, there is no conversion that is not miraculous. Anytime a dead heart becomes alive because Jesus draws it to himself and supernaturally saves us, that is a miraculous thing that shows that Jesus is present in that moment. Okay, that's why we need to remember our own testimonies. We need to hear the testimonies of other Christians in our, our DCs and at our tables because it reminds us that Jesus is among us. That even when we feel depleted, even when we feel afraid, God is always working and he is drawing people to himself and that should give us, give us strength. Um, I, I wish I had time to talk about the idea of like Paul set up shop right next door to the synagogue, right? The idea of like, talk about like thumbing people, <laughs> poking them in the eye. He's like, you kick me out of the synagogue, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna open my, I'm gonna open my coffee shop right next to Starbucks to show them that I have a better product kind of here. Um, but wait, let's keep going anyway, verse, verse nine. Um, and so we're talking about, okay, the idea of like, it's natural to feel fear and anxiety and depletion, but that's only overcome by the supernatural presence of God. And, and, and listen to how Jesus does that specifically in this situation. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Okay, okay and even that, I'm, I'm setting this up wrong. Listen to that. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Okay, th- think about how kind that is of Jesus. That, that at Paul at his lowest, the only time in the scriptures that he says that he was full of fear and trembling and weakness, when he's at his lowest, God loves him enough. Jesus loves him enough. He doesn't send an angel to encourage him. He comes himself in a vision. Jesus himself speaks to Paul and says this, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And because of this vision, it says he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What an amazing picture of the love of Jesus, right? That he would care enough for Paul to give this vision to bring him strength. Okay, and and then even for us, if we've never seen a, a vision that clearly or heard the word of the Lord that clearly, what an amazing sign of the love of Jesus that he has given us that same message here. That anytime we're feeling afraid or feeling depleted, we can come to the word and know that we can find the encouragement, the supernatural presence of Jesus in these words. And so, so what Jesus does in this vision is he, he does uh, five things. He, he gives two commands and he makes three promises. And even that math 
feels like it's the way Jesus deals with things, right? There's always more promises than there is commands. But listen to the commands that he gives them. First one is, do not be afraid. Like, that's a good command. That's not a heavy command. And, and, and I have never counted, but I've heard that there are 365 times in the Bible that God says to his people, fear not. Okay, he, he speaks to his fear. He says, do not be afraid. And then he says, continue to speak. Keep doing what I've called you to do. You have a ministry. Continue to serve in that ministry, even though you're depleted, even though you're full of fear. Fear not and continue to speak. I, I also, I love that he doesn't say, it's been a hard season, Paul. How about for this next season, you, uh, let's try this. Just preach the gospel at all times and use words only if necessary, right? That old St. Francis of Assisi thing we all like to throw around when we're feeling fearful of evangelizing. And he says, Paul, use your words, right? Like be a big kid, use your words, but don't be afraid. And the reason you don't have to be afraid is because I am with you. Those are the four most beautiful words in the Bible, I think. I am with you. Every lonely heart longs to hear those words, no matter who they're from. But imagine hearing the words, I am with you, from the creator of the universe, who loved you and knit you together in your mother's womb, who's had a plan for you since before eternity, who has, has guided sovereignly every step of your path, who, who loved you enough to die for you, who has, has called you to himself, who has created a family for you to belong to, him, the God, of, the God of the universe saying, I am with you. Those are powerful words, okay? And that's what the, the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament. This is from Psalm 118 when he says, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, that promise, I will never leave you. I am with you. And look what that provides for us. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. When we're feeling afraid, when we're feeling depleted, the Lord is my helper. And I think God does a pretty good job at helping. All right, if he's on your side, I think we're going to be okay. That's the, that's the first promise. The second promise is uh, no harm will come to you. This is a very specific promise for the Apostle Paul. As we read through the book of Acts, we see the dude has a lot of harm come to him, right? He's been beaten up. He's been run out of town. He's been stoned. He's been thrown in prison, all those things. But God's promising in this moment, while he is in Corinth, there's going to be no physical harm that comes to him. Okay, later on, he's going to be beheaded. So it's not like this promise is some kind of prosperity gospel that means from now on you're going to be good to go. Just keep clinging to faith and you'll have health and wealth and all those things. But he's saying that in this season, God's going to show his sovereign care by protecting him in this season of depletion so that he knows that he will be okay. And, and, and that promise for us, we don't have to try to claim that like that's for us and that God is promising us no physical harm will come to us. But what we can, what we can claim, what we see from the rest of scripture is that that truth is something we can cling to for all of eternity. As followers of Christ, no ultimate harm will ever come to us. Think about that, because like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like, you could get martyred today. Someone could kill you today because you're a Christian. Uh, Well, to die is to be with Christ, and according to Paul, death is gain, and that's, that's a win in the end. Okay, what, what else could happen? Well, we could, we could lose our business. We could lose our finances. We could lose all of our money. We could be completely poor. But if you have Christ, if Christ is your treasure, then you're richer than any man on earth, right? You, you could be ridiculed. You could be shamed. You could be made fun of. Uh, but if Christ has adopted you and has loved you, you have more approval than you will ever know what to do with in Christ. Okay, no harm can come to you, no matter what, if you are truly in Christ. And then I, he ends, this, ends with this promise. He says, for I have many people in this city who are mine. 
Okay, th- th- this is one of those verses that makes people uncomfortable because it's so clear and how God has predestined people and drawn them to himself. He's saying, even though in this city, so far there's hardly any Christians, but I have many in this people that are mine that he has already chosen. Okay, a lot of times we think of predestination as this thing that like, well, if they're predestined, why do I need to go share the gospel with them? Seems like God's got this taken care of already. But what, what, what people point out, what scholars point out is that every time predestination is mentioned in scripture, it's mentioned as an incentive for evangelism, not a de-incentive de- or whatever the disincentive, whatever word I'm looking for there. Um, so um, if, you, if you have any questions on that, there's this great book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And what we see in that idea is if God is sovereign, we have the confidence to evangelize, knowing that he already has many people out there he has chosen, and all we get to do is go scatter the seed of the gospel and celebrate the fruit as God brings people to himself from, from the, our efforts. And so, so with that, this amazing supernatural promise of Jesus, I just saw the clock. I really got to pick up my pace here. Every time I have a few weeks off, I never know what kind of rhythm I'm going to be in. Apparently, I'm in one of those really slow rhythms today. So let's, uh, let's cover a lot of verses here in the next few minutes. How's that sound? So Paul, from this feeling of depleted and exhausted, he's had this vision from Jesus. He knows that the natural feelings of of fear and depletion are only overcome by the supernatural presence of Jesus, which he has experienced. And look what happens next. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So these new friends have joined him in this ministry. They're now missionaries alongside him. And at Sennacherib, he had his hair, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on, but on talking, on, uh, excuse me, on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So, so this feels like just a lot of different cities he's mentioning in a short period of time. But if you, if you zoom out and see the big picture of what's happening in the book of Acts, Paul has just completed what is known as his second missionary journey. Okay, so he started in Antioch. He looped all the way through all these cities like Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and ended up back in Antioch again. And so he's finished now his second journey uh, and then he begins his third journey where he's gonna head back to Ephesus. Next week, we'll talk about that. And he's going through Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples, building up the church there. So this is like a, a lot of time is covered in a very short number of verses here by Luke as he writes Acts. But in the middle of that, he puts this really weird concept concept of, um, okay, I'm so far behind, out of practice, right? And I say that, I haven't preached in four weeks. We skipped five verses in there. That's no big deal, right? We can just go back and read them now. And on the recording, they can edit this and we'll just splice it back in somewhere else. So yeah, we just finished verse 11. Let's pick it up in verse 12 and hold all those thoughts about the verses 18 through 23 for a second from now. You guys are such a gracious church family. I love you guys. Um, so he had this vision from Jesus, um, but the hardship isn't over yet. Listen to what happens. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So the same Jewish thing is happening where the leaders are bringing him before the authorities, trying to get him arrested or beaten or something worse. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, 
Gallio, this is the proconsul, the leader of the Roman representative, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they, that be the Roman crowds, all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. This is one of the most bizarre court cases in the New Testament, right? So, so Sosthenes, Crispus is the ruler of the synagogue. He becomes a Christian. So Sosthenes, his number two, gets promoted. He has a new job. He's in charge of the synagogue. He has to try to do what Crispus could not do, which is keep the apostle Paul from spreading the gospel. So he has this idea of suing Paul, of dragging him before the court and telling the Roman officials, this guy is causing a disturbance. And the Roman official says, I don't want to hear any of this. This is about your own law. Get out of here. And instead, the plaintiff, the guy bringing the attack against Paul, goes outside where he gets the mess beat out of him by the Roman citizens for causing a disturbance. It's the most bizarre thing in the New Testament because Paul is always the one getting beat up. But here instead, it's the guy attacking him that gets beat up by the crowds because the Romans didn't have any patience for this Jewish disturbance that was going on. And so what we see here is God is true to his word. What did God say in that vision to Paul? No harm will come to you while you're here. And so the guy who is trying to attack Paul ends up getting beat up himself for trying to attack the person that God has already said he's going to protect. And so what we see is that this, in, in seasons like this, this is a nice little reminder that God is in control, right? That, that God can sovereignly work in the middle of any court proceeding, in the middle of any government rules or regulations or anything. God is sovereign over that. And what it reminds us is that in those seasons where it doesn't turn out our way, in the seasons where Paul's the one who's beat up instead of Sosthenes, in those seasons it reminds us that God can deliver us, which means one day he will ultimately deliver us. It's like that beautiful passage in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they're getting thrown into the fiery furnace and they say, hey, our God's going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we know we're going to be okay. That's the same kind of thing. We have that confidence to say, even if God doesn't deliver us here, we're going to be okay because I've seen how he has delivered us in the past. In instances like this, we get reminders of God's sovereignty, which, which is another reminder that he is with us. The presence of Jesus is seen in how he sovereignly orchestrates events. So let's wrap up this passage, like read verses 18, 18 through 23, like we did a little bit ago, right? So Paul wraps up his second missionary journey. We can all follow along what I was saying there. The weird thing that happens, and as Paul wraps up this second missionary journey, is he has his, his, his under a vow, it's a, a Nazarite vow, where he would have not cut his hair or shaved his beard for a period of time. He would have avoided alcohol. He couldn't touch a dead body. But then when he gets to Ephesus, his vow is over. So he shaves his head, he cuts his beard, and he would actually would have done, we know from cultural context, he would have kept that hair and taken it to Jerusalem and offered it as a burnt offering in the temple to God as a sign of thanksgiving. And that makes us feel incredibly uncomfortable because we're like, why is Paul, the guy who's like, we don't have to go to temple to offer sacrifices, why is he doing this vow and then going to the temple and offering this burnt offering of an, an, his Nazarite vow being broken? And, and what is, what's happening is there's actually two ways you can do a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. You can do it as a petition of God's protection moving forward. You can say, I'm going to do this vow and I hope you keep me safe. Or you can do it in response to how God has provided protection for you in the past. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, because God had promised to protect me, I'm going to show my gratitude to Jesus by doing this vow as a spiritual discipline. I'm going to grow my hair out as, a, as a, a vow, as a spiritual discipline, as a way of thanking God for the way that he has kept me safe through this season. 
And so, so what, what Paul does by doing that vow is it's not saying, I hope that God will accept this as an offering and he will like me because of this. He's saying, I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done for me that I'm gonna offer this vow as a sacrifice, as a, as a sign of thanksgiving for the protection that God has provided for me. And I think with that, we see the final reminder of how you can experience the presence of Jesus, right? It's natural to feel fearful and depleted in your ministry, but that's overcome by the supernatural presence of Jesus. And whether or not it's a season of fasting, like this Nazarite vow is a form of fasting, or reading, or reading your, the scriptures, or spending time in prayer, or serving, or community, all these other things that we refer to as the means of grace or the spiritual disciplines, those are times where it's not checking a box of a religious duty, It's actually pressing into the presence of Jesus, knowing that when you come to the word, you're gonna experience the presence of God. When when we're full of fear and anxiety, when we're feeling depleted, the first place we run is to the scriptures. It's to prayer. It's to other believers finding that encouragement that we're talking about. All of those things are are examples of the types of disciplines that we see Paul having done here. And so the reason he's able to go on that third missionary journey is that he had limped into Corinth afraid and depleted, but God had encouraged and filled him so he's able to go continue to do the ministry that God had called him to. So my prayer for us as a church is that that even when we get to those seasons of depletion and fear and anxiety, that we would cling to the presence of Jesus knowing that is where we'll find our strength from, right? In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus is is the great commission. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, God's presence is with us always. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. So no matter what we're feeling, we know that we can endure because his presence is with us. Okay, so, so it's completely natural to feel like quitting whatever ministry it is that God has called you to do. We all get to those seasons where we're like, uh, have you, uh, God has called me to serve in the three-year-old classroom. Have you seen three-year-olds? That can be a challenge sometime, right? But God is calling you to endure in that because three-year-olds are great and those kids back there need to hear the good news of how Jesus loves them. Okay, like we all have had that season where you're like, I, I need to share the gospel with my neighbor, but he aggravates me in so many different ways. Right, but we need to endure through that and keep on being faithful to what God's calling. Because when you press through those seasons of depletion and fear and anxiety, what's on the other side is these amazing pictures of how God works and how only God can work. And that's what I think we're ultimately longing for when it comes to ministry. It's not what are some cool things that we can do in our own strength. It's what are some miraculous things that only have the fingerprints of God and no one can get credit for it except Jesus because it's so amazing. And here's one example of what I'm talking about. If we press through, we see those kinds of things. So the last time we met Sosthenes, what was happening, right? He was drugged into the streets and he had the crap beat out of him by the Romans. He was completely lying there, bleeding half to death. Who knows what's going to happen to him because this mob just had their way with him and destroyed him, all right? And so that's the last time we see Sosthenes in the book of Acts. And that's usually where the story ends, right? He was leading the synagogue. He was leading the charge against Paul. But a few years after Paul leaves the city of Corinth, he's writing a letter back to this church. He's trying to tell them, here's some things that God is calling you to in order to live the life of faithfulness that he's called you to. Um, And what happens is Paul, with most of his letters, he has a co-author. And in the ancient world, you always introduce yourself and your co-author. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and my co-author, our brother Sosthenes. Isn't that amazing? 
that somehow Sosthenes went from this chief opponent of Jesus who was trying to attack Paul and get Paul killed and instead for attacking him, he ended up getting beat up himself. Somewhere over the next few years, he comes to Christ and gets yoked up with Paul and co-writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. Okay, that's the kind of miraculous thing that only God can do. And we don't see those kinds of miraculous things if we give up when we're in the seasons of fear or depleted. But if we press through, we see those miracles that have the fingerprints of Jesus all over them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and just what an amazing reminder it is. Um, no matter what order you read the verses in, right? <laughs> that, it's, that it's true and it's given out of your love and that you can, can show us uh, how, how great you are, how you are with us, uh, that we have your presence. And if we experience your presence, then that any barrier or obstacle we feel that feels heavy, that can be overcome uh, because of you. And so I pray that, that we would follow the example of our brother Paul, that we would be missionaries who give ourselves for the, the spread of the gospel and the glory of your kingdom. Uh, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we, uh, the, if you're new here, uh, the reason we sit around tables is so we can discuss some stuff after the sermon. Um, usually the sermon's a little bit shorter than this, and so we don't have more time to do that. But here's three questions to get us started for the next few minutes before we end with a period of worship. Uh, question one is, does evangelism or mission scare you? And if so, why? Like, are, are there seasons where you feel afraid of this idea of sharing the gospel with someone? Uh, secondly, have you ever felt depleted in ministry or your walk with Jesus? How would experiencing the presence of Jesus impact that? And then lastly, what means of grace or spiritual disciplines has Jesus used to show you that he is with you? Remember, Paul shaving his head was one of those, a sign of fasting, a vow that God had used to show the presence of Jesus to Paul. What spiritual disciplines has God shown himself through with you? So let's do that for probably about five minutes, and then we'll end with a little bit of worship. You know, one thing, you know, Gilbert quoted... uh, uh, Spurgeon, but uh, it reminds me of another quote from Spurgeon where he says, before we can be savers of souls, we must be weepers of souls. And um, I think that's one thing we should always pray for, that we really have a heart to love others enough to, to reach out to them, show them the love of Christ. Uh, yeah, and uh, I don't have to connect that passage to the gospel because that gospel is all over the passage, but this is uh, this is a time to remember what Jesus has done for us. Uh, as we respond, I know there's a few different ways we can respond, and uh, one is by giving. And there's a box back there, or uh, the church app. You can just click on give. It's really easy. And you can respond by prayer. You can pray at the table. You can. Uh, me and Jess could be back in the corner. You can, you can ask us to pray for you. Uh, prayer is always a good response and uh, we'll sing and uh, that's another great way to worship but, uh, but as we do communion one thing I want to mention is that uh, communion is open to everyone who has uh, received Christ as their savior but if you have not this is it's not for you but um, now's a good time to consider that because Christ died for you and, uh, so we have tables somewhere over there, back there, over here. So as the music plays, uh, we can take the elements and just uh, uh, remember Jesus. And so uh, he took the, took the bread and said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the, the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So uh, 
let's just remember what Jesus has done for us. So let me pray. Yeah, Lord, uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the message. Thank you for your love, your sacrifice. Thank you for loving us. And uh, Lord, help us to love others enough and to make us weepers of souls, Lord, and to help us to, to remember that your presence is with us and that uh, you will be with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.